Hello, welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Today's guest is Claire Bowditch. She's the best. I love Claire. She's uh, got such a huge heart. She is intelligent and emotional and compassionate. She's a beautiful writer. She's just written a book called Your Own Kind of Girl, which is heartbreaking and hilarious and challenging and, you know, just super smart. Anyway, it's a brilliant book. We touch on some of the stories from that book in today's chat, but not all of them, um, because when I chat to somebody, I don't want to just talk about what's in the book, because I want you guys to go and buy the book and read the book and have some stories up your sleeve, and I guarantee, uh, highly recommended. Uh, I, I can't imagine there's anybody who wouldn't get something out of uh, your own kind of girl, which is Claire's book. Of course, you know Claire from her music and her presenting and a whole bunch of other things but um I, right now i'm just highly recommending your own kind of girl by claire bowditch and you know put on some music of hers and listen to that too i talk about one song that i particularly love at the start of this chat uh, maybe you can check that out download that we can have a big spike that can be your christmas single uh, for this year um uh, i am doing some live shows if you'd like to support this podcast if you like the podcast coming out weekly, uh, there are two ways you can support it. Firstly, go to patreon.com slash philosophy and you can just uh, donate as little as a dollar a month uh, to for me to be able to pay podcast Mike and Michael and uh, James Fosdyke for the original art and to book studios and all these sort of things that keep the podcast going. So patreon.com slash philosophy is the place to do that. Or the other way you can support me is, of course, by coming out and seeing my live shows. And in 2020, I am doing a heap of live shows. I start in Wyong in early January. So if you're in the Wyong area, I'm doing my show Will Eagle, which is all about being arrested on the way to Wagga Wagga. I follow that with two weeks of my improvised show, What You Talking About Will, at the Sydney Comedy Store. That is nearly half sold out already. So uh, a couple of nights, uh, one's definitely sold out. A couple of nights are close to selling out. So if you want to get tickets to that, I would recommend um, getting in before Christmas. Um, uh, and uh, buy some tickets to what you're talking about, Will, at the Sydney Comedy Store. And then uh, after that, Brunswick Heads, I'm doing my Will Inform show, which is a show that I did at last year's uh, Melbourne International Comedy Festival. I'm going to do a bit of a rewrite just to update some stuff, but uh, I really enjoyed doing that show in Melbourne last year, and I'm going to tour it to all the major capital cities in 2020. So you can go to comedy.com.au and find out all the places I will be, Adelaide Fringe, uh, Melbourne International Comedy Festival, two weeks of Illegal, uh, two weeks of the Improvised Show, What You're Talking About, Will, which is the very first time that I've done those shows at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And who knows, it might be the last, so come along and see it. Uh, completely made up every night, completely different every night. Uh, you know, I do talk to some people in the front, first front, you, for, uh, the first front, the first few front rows. Sorry, how's your day going today? I just walked into a glass door. So uh turns out I might have a slight concussion as I'm doing this uh, introduction. Anyway, doing a whole bunch of shows. All the details are at comedy.com.au. Buy some tickets. Come along. It's a good way to support me, but also have a good time. At the same time, I have some other podcasts, by the way. If you like nonsense, I have one called Tofop, which Charlie Clawson and I have been doing for next year. will be our 10th year of doing Tofop. Uh, there is one called Fofop, which is irregularly updated, but has some of the best comedians from all over the world where we talk some nonsense and... You can dip into the nearly 300 episodes of that at any stage. During the footy season, Charlie and I have a AFL football podcast, if you like AFL football, called Two Guys, One Cup. Um, so there you go, there's four. Charlie also has a new podcast with Osher Ginsberg about uh, being a dad. It's called Dad Pod. Um, you can also check that out if you um, want to listen to a podcast between two blokes who've recently had kids work out 
how you uh, have a baby and raise a baby and all those sort of things. It's an excellent podcast. So um, you can check all those things out and uh, you can come and see one of my shows or you can join up with the Patreon. There you go. That's the plugs. So buy Claire's book. Uh, um, you can go to James Fosdyke's Redbubble page for merchandise. If you want merchandise from this podcast or any of the other podcasts, there is merchandise available. And uh, that's about it. I'm going to go and uh, put some ice on my head. Uh, enjoy this episode with Claire. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, today's guest, very excited to have her on. She's just written an amazing book, which I won't say the title of yet because it will give away who the guest is and the whole, the way this, po- well, I, I love that I'm like, it would give away who the guest is, but clearly you've downloaded this podcast. There was a picture of this guest attached to the podcast. Her name's in the description of the podcast. So I guess the bit that I do at the start where I ask the guests who they are is more for me than it is for you guys. But anyway, who are you? Hello, I'm Claire Bowditch. Hello, Claire. Hi, Will Anderson. This is fun. It's nice to have you in here. I appreciate it. I was good and mysterious, that one. I was, I crept up. Mm. You couldn't see me. I crept up behind the mic and I did a boo. It'd be great if Masked Singer style, like <laughs> all my guests kind of just emerged and I did not know who they were until the final moment. That'd be sort of shocking. Your Kind of it? Girl is the name of the book. Yeah, Your Own Kind of Girl. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, it's great. I only finished it this morning. I, I've been uh, trying to get it done in the small amount of time that I have. I'm uh, deeply impressed that you've, you've managed that with all that you do well, especially this time of year. So thank you. No, it's a, it, I, well, I really wanted to make sure that I'd read it before, uh, you know, you came in to talk to me, but, um, let's not start with the book. Can we start with something else? Anything. I'm going to start with, um, if you don't mind a song of yours, which I think that is one of the, the greatest Australian songs ever written. I'm going to say, uh, which is a song called the one. Now I've always had just a, it's one of those songs that for me gets disproportionately overplayed. You know, it's, <laughs> I, I, you know, from the minute I first heard it, I, you know, it was a song that just sort of spoke to something that I have experienced myself and that is so little talked about, you know, in our society. So can you talk to me a little about where that song came from? So the one is a song that often people who live touring lives or work in the creative arts or, um, or so on, um, do, do, this does seem to be their favorite song. It does seem to be an experience that they understand. Of course, it's all fiction, but um, it tells the story of a a woman uh, in a hotel lobby having a conversation, a deep conversation with someone who she realises she could spend the rest of the night or possibly her life with. Um, And that's an impossible uh, conundrum because she is already betrothed. So it tells that story of what happens inside us when we, when this, this feeling comes upon us, this very particular feeling, which is going to come to you if you engage in any length of monogamy in your life, ladies and gentlemen, my <laughs> friends. So, um, I, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't know exactly where the song came from, but it was, um, somewhere in the vicinity of, um, 2011 ish, I think. And yeah, the one. I, I I like the idea of that. One of the th- themes of it that it seems to explore, at least to me, is that idea of that there can be 
more than one the one. You know, there are plenty of potential the ones. And just because you have found a the one, uh, and this is what is so beautiful about the song, because it battles with those ideas to me of, you know, you suddenly seeing a sliding doors moment or a different possibility, or I could be, I could see how this could be a different life that I could explore and a different love that mm-hmm. I could explore and a different possibility. But I'm wrestling with the idea that I know that if I do this, it destroys the thing that I have right now. And that thing that I have right now is more precious to me in this battle than the, than the, this, you know, wonderful blank slate possibility <laughs> of this, you know, perfect love affair that is staring me in the face right now. Well, I think we grow up in this society with a series of fictions, a series of stories, and almost the process of ad- uh, adulthood is is determining which choices we're going to make and which ones we're going to stick to. But it is very alluring, this story, that there is one for us, the one. And when we meet that, the one, uh, all desire shall fall to the wayside and we will never feel these other contrary feelings again. And there's also the possibility within us that when we do feel those things, we feel like we've done something wrong. And often in songs, I, I like speaking these points of nuance because we all feel them. It's, uh, it's an amazing thing. And there's a version, uh, that Eddie Perfect and Tripod did of your song, uh, from the Perfect Tripod Australian Songs album. I, I'm always interested because you yourself have covered other people's work. I have, yes. Uh, what is it like when then people take your work and they, they cover it, they reinterpret it, they bring, you know, what they enjoy about it to the table? What happens for me is quite delightful, actually, because I have a very strong inner critic, like the majority of people. You know, I have a strong survival brain that's always arcing up about the things I've done wrong and where I could have done better and, you know, X, Y and Z. But when, and that can come up for me with my own songs from time to time. But when I hear the boys doing the version of this song, um, it's delightful. I'm able to hear this song in a new light. I'm able to hear it through their voices. And you probably know this well, but it is actually exceptionally rare for men to, to cover women's work. Uh, Jeff Buckley did it with Lilac Wine, Nina Simone, but it's actually really, really rare. They didn't tell me they were doing it. It just happened and I got to hear it and I just love it. I really, really love it because I love those boys, the the gang of them. Um, they're good. They're great artists and they're good chaps and they've had these, I don't know, I like the choices they've made in their lives. Um, so it was a real honor actually. And what about then when you, well, have to, when you choose to, when you are approached to, when you, you choose yourself to cover somebody else's work, what is it that you look for in songs that you like to sing that other people have written? It's I think it's quite simple in a way. It's just, does this feel true? Do I have, you know, when I did, I I did a cover probably like many Australian artists, my most played bloody song on Spotify is, is a cover, you know? (laughs) I'm honored, but it's, it's bizarre the way this can work sometimes. Um, it can be really helpful in a fledgling, in an early career to have a cover that people recognize. It can draw them into your body of work. But the cover that we are most recognized, myself and my variety of bands, is Fall at Your Feet um, by Crowded House. And even though that is a song that was written from a different gender perspective and so on. Um, it's always felt true to me and we were able to sing it true and record it true. And th- I think that for me is what draws me to a cover. Um, there are other experiences like Nina Simone's The Other Woman, which again, you know, the, I don't have 
I don't have any, you know, personal connection with that story. I've actually never been, you know, mercifully, I'm going to touch wood here, but never been in a situation that complicated, (laughs) um, um, in a time period that was, was that complicated. But when I sing that song again, it feels true and the same with the Radiohead song. So it, ha- it just has to be true in some way. Uh, do you have a song? Uh, are you, Jeff Buckley's a pretty yeah, consistent theme in the book and it feels like he, as an artist and what he was doing, mm. you know, unlocked something or, you know, you responded to, you know, the music and the art that he was creating in a way that you perhaps... Yeah, even though you'd loved music up until that point, there was something that got unlocked around that time. Would that be fair to say? It's fair to say I couldn't see my way in. I couldn't see how someone as, you know, someone as sensitive as me could survive in an industry like rock and roll. I just didn't see it. And Jeff Buckley is, you know, this just to, for anyone who hasn't read the book, I know there are, um, there are many of you there. So let me just explain. This, in fact, that's why Claire's on the podcast is <laughs> to get you to read the book. We've started with talking about our music. You can download that. You can listen to it in the background while you're reading the book. Sorry, but it's on, it's um, only out for, it's only been out for a week and a half. So Jeff Buckley is the only person of um, fame, I guess, who's mentioned in this celebrity, in this book. It's not a celebrity memoir in any way, shape or form. That's not a book I would have written well. I've said it before, but... You know, we're going to leave that to Keith Jarrett. We're going (laughs) to allow him to tell that story in his own way. This is actually just a different kind of a story. It's a story about how do we find our nexus of control and is there a way we can count ourselves into a world that all of us feel we don't belong to at times. You know, that is, there's this restless, there was a restlessness in me as a kid. I wanted to make music, but I couldn't see, I couldn't see women like me making the kind of music I wanted. I couldn't hear them on the radio. Sometimes I got to hear a little bit of Tori Amos or someone who I'd be like, oh, that sounds like it might be in my world. But again, we had very different body sizes. I was a big girl. She was um, far more, you know, sexually courageous from a marketing perspective than I felt I could be or wanted to be. Um, So I felt I'd counted myself out of that story. But one day I went to Gaslight Records in um, Burke Street it's an old record store and I was working at a call centre at the time and I had this secret little dream but most of my life was spent serving people's customer service needs with their mobile phones and, that, you know, there's a, there's a dignity in doing a job well and I was trying my best but I had a bigger dream. I went to Gaslight Records, I bought Jeff's CD, I'd heard it on Triple J and the guy behind the counter said, actually he's in town and he's doing an in-store and you get a free ticket to it. And I didn't know much about Jeff Buckley, except I'd heard his songs and thought, that's interesting. My friend Lena at work said that he sounded like a moaning cow and, (laughs) (laughs) and that, you know, I, I could, um, you know, I could do better than that or this kind of thing, but I, I loved him. And And as someone who grew up on a dairy farm, I can guarantee he does not sound (laughs) like a moaning cow. God bless. Um, but there we were in this little room that, um, later on, uh, that week, just about 40 to 50 of us, Candelabra, Jeff Buckley walked in the room. He was funny. He was fragile. He was strong and he sang and it just got me. I still feel the sting in my eyeballs when I think about it, which is so silly because <clears throat> in weeks of talking about <laughs> this story, I've not felt this way, but 
something about being in Melbourne chatting with you. It was so special. It's so Jeff Buckley to me, uh, I was lucky enough to see him by accident. And, uh, the reason was that, uh, the Prince Patrick Hotel, do you remember the Prince Patrick? I do, you know, and I, right? couldn't, I couldn't get a ticket to that one. Well, so <laughs> n- neither could I, except, so I was, had become, I was starting out in my comedy career and mm-hmm. I'd started just doing a, a show at the Prince Pack uh, on a, che- on a Wednesday night called The Cheese Shop that was run by Dave Taranto and, and, you know, it was kind of the best Melbourne comedians, yep. but he would have a slot for sort of up and coming people, people who were starting out their career. And it was the coolest gig in town, you know, as a comedian, the Pat and, you know, you were, you know, alongside Judas and Sue Ann Post and Linda Gibson and, you know, Miss Itchy and, you know, Anthony Morgan and Fleety at his, you know, peak powers. And it was, yeah. you know, it was a real exciting time in Melbourne comedy. And as a kid coming into that scene, just, you know, I, these people were heroes to me. So, so I would love the idea that I could just, you know, pop into the Prince Pat, you know, I was, I was someone who performed there and. So I was having a little, as you know, this will come as living every cliche of, you know, a young artist on the way up. I was having a little thing with the girl who worked behind the bar. As you do. Well, you know. I used to play there too and she was amazing. I mean, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. And uh, she had borrowed a t-shirt of mine um, and I had gone in to pick up the t-shirt and it just happened to be the (gasps) night that. Jeff Buckley was playing. Give me the high Good five. story, right? Good, Isn't that good, a good, good one? That is, yeah. It's, oh my god! It's one of those great serendipitous, you know, moments in your life where you're like, none of this is because I had done anything to plan this, but it was one of the most stunning musical performances that I've ever been in a room for. Like he was an in, incredible artist, but you know, you know, they often say, you know, wore his heart outside his body and, mm-hmm. and it did have that feel mm. Do, because of you know, because I have read the book and because I, I, you know, now know a lot more of your story than I did beforehand, because, you know, the book itself, you put your heart outside your body a bit and, mm-hmm. and let people in on, you know, what, what got you to where you are now. Were you nervous about, you know, kind of going on the record with all that, all that stuff? Because once it's all written down, once it's in the book, it becomes public domain in, yeah. in some ways. What's always driven me. And I think continues to drive me is this thought that we can use our art as a way to make things more whole and as a way to be useful in the world. It's, you know, again, there's this nobility in each profession and for the arts, we have this special possibility that we could do something good with our lives, with our work in ways that we will never understand in ways that go out into the ether and then might, might never come back or might be passed on in a different way. So there, there is, um, I've always suspected that about a career in, in storytelling and in music making, that we can do something precious with it. And the reason that's settled in me so strongly and the reason I was, um, willing to and happy to in some way tell this story is that when I was 21, I had the toughest time of my life. So after, um, you know, I was, I had the, the inspiration, the fire, the Holy Spirit of Jeff Buckley inside me. And I started to go out and play my music in the world with now a little idea about, oh, so someone, you know, my music is really nothing like Jeff's, but there was something in, I I recognize in him a fragility and the possibility of, of how powerful it is to be vulnerable. But he also mixed in comedy and all sorts of balance in there too, which was really skillful. So off I went and I had a real tough time in London, which we might get into at some point. Um, but I started experiencing what I now recognize as acute panic. I was having sort of um, layer up and layer of panic attacks 
that were triggered by a series of unfortunate incidents and a lack of sleep and a story I'd always told myself about how I needed to be thin and I'd stopped eating correctly. So I had this sort of, you know, clusterfuck really going on in there. And I came home, tail between my legs, my friend Libby Chow, actually, who's my darling French horn player from the feeding set from the early days. But her and her mum got me on a plane um, and got me home to Melbourne. And I had a story in my head then that I would never recover. I didn't understand mental ill health. I didn't understand that um, an experience of acute mental ill health is something you can recover from and actually something that, not to glamorise it in any way, that, that can be the making of you. And it was certainly the making of me because it was a point in my life where I suddenly asked myself, what am, what am I doing here? What do I want to do here? Who am I here to please? What is true? You know, all these sort of questions that gurgle around inside us. So this was my moment of reckoning. And what helped me in there what helped me understand what I was going through and that I could recover was just a little book that I found by a woman called Dr. Claire Weeks, um, where she explained what ner she called it nervous suffering was. She's the original gangster of mindfulness and she was derided at the time for being a quack, you know, but she was the first <laughs> because she didn't say <clears throat> you have to sit on the couch for the rest of your life. And she didn't say you didn't. She said, you know, that might be useful speaking about it might be useful, but right now you're in a, a, a panic state and this is why your body's doing it and this is how you recover. And her technique was just about taking the fear, the second fear out of it. So learning that, you know, that was a effectively a self-help book that um, gave me a very simple technique and then reading stories about other people who'd recovered and hearing the stories of Caroline Jones would tell on the Search for Meaning or other programs at the time. It helped me so much. And I needed some hope. So I said, all right, one day I will recover too. And I will tell my story. <laughs> and I won't do that though. I needed the hope of the promise, but I, I couldn't handle the pressure of having to do, actually do it. So I said, I'll do that when I'm really, really old, like when I'm 40. <laughs> and, you know, 40 came around a couple of years back and it was time. So when you're about to, you know, go down that, that path, do you have a sense of, I'm going to tell this whole story? Is the book that you have written what you thought it would be when you sat down to write it? Or did it reveal itself to you in part during the process? Uh, the story was clear by the time I sat down to write it. And this, I was working on a theory as a 21, 22, and then 23-year-old. And you didn't, nobody heard my first solo songs um, on Triple R or any of the other community stations until I was sort of 27. We'd, we, I'd been in a band, Red Raku, but it took a few years um, in between being in a band, Red Raku, and releasing my solo stuff, where I started to say, I'm going to tell my own story, this story of being a human being, because I'd worked out that it was a very common story <laughs> and that it's, it's good when we share our stories. So um, I knew what this book would be. It was, it was kind of clear. I wasn't sure where to end it. I wasn't sure if I was doing a sort of um, bum steer by not telling the Leonard Cohen stories or the, you know, the touring stories that people always seem to want to talk about. But I figured this was actually, uh, you know, all due respect to, to rock and roll lifestyle. It's, 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 it's fun and there's a lot that goes on, <laughs> um, but it's its own book. This one was the one that I specifically wrote to uh, allow whoever it is who needs this book to ask a question about a second question about what is possible for me.
How much of life do you think the complications we have in life, uh, come back to the idea that we think we are the only person who is going through these things? Can I ask you, Yeah. what do you think? Like, what, what do you, what do you think about that? How how much do you feel of your complications have been? Well, so here's what I would say is what I've been trying to do. I've always felt very, I've had a huge level of guilt about sharing things that have gone wrong. Like I've talked a little bit on this podcast over the last couple of years. I mean, people who listen regularly will know that, you know, there's been episodes where you, you get a little insight into that there's been real struggles in the last couple of years for a whole bunch of reasons. But I all, I also feel that I always feel my life's really lucky. You know, I have the, I have a great life. I get to do what I want to do with my life. I've, you know, spent the last 25 years, you know, making a living, doing the thing that I'm passionate about in the world. Like it's, it's given me great opportunity, great wealth, all these sort of things. It feels almost that you, uh, it feels ungrateful to complain that, you know, or to mention even that things are hard or things have gone wrong or at the moment I'm, you know, doing these things while I'm struggling with something else. But as I've got older, and I guess this comes to the point that I'm saying is, am I being unfair to other people if I present my life as the Instagram account of my life where it looks like everything's always fine? Is it more helpful to people to say, yes, hey, the tour went well or the TV show's going well or whatever, but that doesn't mean that like in my day-to-day life, there aren't these range of things that I am struggling with on a daily basis or I'm working my way through as a daily basis or there aren't, you know, severe doubts or, you know, anger or pain or, you know, all these things that I personally regrets, you know, mistakes that I have to reconcile and work through and decide, you know, what sort of person that I want to be external to the way you present yourself to the world. So Mm. no, there has been a, I have consciously started to think that it perhaps is unfair to the people I talk to, if I don't let them know that that is also happening because mm-hmm. I admire the fact that you could keep that to yourself. <laughs> like I don't have the ability to, um, see, I think you've worked in, in, in many different spheres and in the commercial sphere, for example, which is <clears throat> the sphere that we seem to, um, engage with, you know, this looks like success. This is success. Mm. The story is success is the fact that you've been able to keep control. So you've been able to contain, uh, the bits of yourself that are messy and you get to present the bits of you that are fun and interesting or wild or wacky. And, you know, we cauterize that part of ourselves in order to, um, do what we told is success. But I, I feel you become so much, you know, you become so much more interesting and relatable um, and helpful to me when I hear that you've struggled because I feel less alone. Um, and I, I, I think that's, you know, it's something that we now have a little more language about around. We've got people like Brene Brown who've been able to articulate, you know, shame and vulnerability and the power of that. But we've always had this, this story in a way, you know, we, we had, you know, we've always known, and I knew it with Jeff Buckley that the bit I was connecting to him about and with was the place he was re- willing to show me that he hadn't got it all right, that he was human too. And you'd have these little moments of lift. So it's almost a miracle to me, Will, that you were able to keep that, um, up for as long as you were, you know, to, 
um, I just, I never had that ability. I knew that it's, it's why I could never, um, it's why I, my, my, my most famous hashtag is Claire Bear Overshare on, on Instagram, because I think that's where I've always felt most connected and most, um, alive. And yet, so I'm the opposite and it's been really hard for me to break it down because like this quote comes up so often on this show and I've really got to finally attribute <laughs> it to the right person at okay, some stage, okay, but okay. which is that there's a theory that comedians become comedians so they can control how people laugh at them. Yeah. You're aware of the fact that some yes. people are going to laugh at you, but if I'm in charge, I can control how you laugh at me. Absolutely. And that means that I can keep all these other aspects of my life that I don't want you laughing at, that, that feel too vulnerable to me, that feel mm. too intimate and real to me. I can, I can offer you this sense that you know me, this sense that I'm sharing all this wonderful stuff with you, but I, I can then build walls around, you know, my real pain and my real insecurities and my real feelings that I don't belong or that I don't, mm. you know, that I'm not good enough or that the mistakes that I've made define me rather than the mm. good bits about me or all those sort of internal monologue things that you deal with, you know, the messiness of your day-to-day -day life, mm. you can, you can present to the world this, this other, you know, uh, this appearance of intimacy Yes, that is not really telling the full story. And it actually becomes a barrier around what you really want to protect. So it's actually been very hard for me to, in trying to share some of that stuff, you know, be comfortable with yeah. how much to share you know, what bits of it that I am yeah. willing to share. So no, I feel the opposite. I'm, it's been a real, even now just talking about it, I yeah. still find it hard to articulate even the process I'm going through in letting some of that stuff out. I do find there's a particular courage that's required at this moment in time for, and I don't pretend to speak on behalf of men, but I see it happening around me. My friend's Starting to, my friends who are guys, starting to learn to articulate their emotions in a world that has told them that it's not safe to do that for millennia, you know, with a brain that has been wired and has evolved to tell them that it's not safe to do that. And so I, I think what's, you know, I get chills when I think about the courage that this era is asking of all of us, of men and women and those beyond gender boundaries to to tell us who they are, you know, and this, this, um, is quite a precious time in some ways that we have time for conversations like this or that we allow space for them. Um, we can always be accused of this being indulgent, you know, this, this society has, and commercial society is built around the idea that as long as you stay thin and keep your feelings to yourself and don't age, you're going to win. And there is an alternative narrative that is being proven again and again at the moment, but it's still a fringe narrative. Um, it still takes incredible guts to stand up and say, mm, these are things that I feel and feelings matter. So, but this, okay, so this is what I am so fascinated in exploring out of that idea, which is the difference between, you know, shaping yourself for what you believe an industry or a public or an audience wants. Yeah, versus starting yeah. with what it is you legitimately have to say and then building outwards from that. And often in my life, you know, my work has been a combination of those two things. Like, you know, it can be, it can be both, but I would, I think that the thought that keeps coming to me more and more, cause I'm what, 45 years old now. So at that age in my life where I was like, I'd, I'd actually like to stop balancing it. 
I'd like to just be doing the stuff. Like, what is it if left to my own devices? And because there's always that constant fear in the back of your head, balancing between what does my audience expect or want from me versus what is it that I genuinely just want to make as an artist? So when you are writing in your life, had a period where you're like, I shall now only do what I want to do as an artist for an extended period of time. No. Interesting. I think that's very interesting. And I think it's very understandable too, because with success comes the story of success comes the accoutrement of success becomes the confusion about, you know, what is success. But I think, my God, I would be so curious to see what a Will Anderson would do in that given given free reign. The thing that I've said to people like constantly, and this is the difference between what you say versus how you act. I, I always say to people, the number one priority in my life is my stand-up, right? And it is. There's absolutely no doubt that the thing that I get the most joy from and conversely, the thing that I get the most pain from when I'm not doing it or I'm not doing it as well as I think that I should be doing it. Yeah. The thing that makes me feel alive in both the good and the bad way is my stand-up. That for me is the thing that I think I do best, the way that I communicate the best. I have never, since I, since I started at Triple J, which is like 20 years ago, I have never once had a year where I've just concentrated on my standup because you know, all that time I had triple J, I had glass house, I've had radio, I've had, you know, grew for the last 11 years going into our 12th year. There's always been another project that has taken up anywhere between a year and a, a, a third of my year that I've not had once in that entire time of do me you saying, long, do you long to have long it? to have it? Okay. And I start to wonder if I'm ever going to allow myself to have it because as you said, like, it's not like, you, you know, you go, well, these opportunities, I've always thought that naturally the opportunities would go away and then I'll just concentrate <laughs> on my stand up. <laughs> you know, like that was always the back of my head. I was like, well, I'll stop returning my calls yeah. on the other things and then I'll just concentrate on my stand up. Yeah, but yeah. I'm now at that point in my life where that's, I, I think that that is really, am I doing myself a disservice by not fully giving myself over at least once in my life to the thing that I to constantly tell people that I love the most. We are recording this in 2019. So if I put you on the spot and said, okay, so you've articulated that really clearly. Life is actually quite short. Uh, you, you, you might have a long time ahead of you. You might not. Uh, why don't you put a year on it? Why don't you say it is, so the year of 2022 or it's 2021 or it's 2028, whatever it is. But why don't you announce what year it is? I, I'm more comfortable having the conversation about why I don't do it than I am to have the conversation <laughs> about locking in that I am going to do it. But it's a thing that is in my mind a lot. But enough about me on that. Tell oh, me, I like talking tell about me, you. Yeah, well, we can, we, can, right. we can talk together, right. but I want to hear where you're at with that. All right, I'll tell then. you what. So here's the thing. I, I wrote this in my book, but I think one of the best training grounds for any comedian, and this is a commonly um, espoused theory, one of the best training grounds for any adult comedian is to have been a fat kid. And I was a fat kid. I was a fat kid, um, through from, I was a big kid from a young age. I was three and I was already, it was already clear to me that my body was bigger than the people around me. And it was articulated to me too, by one particular chap at kindergarten who said, go away, you're too big. I mean, I love this kid. And I got that story in my head. Oh, right. I'm not just big. I'm too big. And I always had this body that sort of revealed 
to the world when I was feeling. So I had a complicated childhood, a very loving childhood, one of five, but I was brought up in a home where my sister died. My sister Rowena died after being unwell for two years between her ages of three and seven, uh, for, sorry, five and seven, I was three to five. So I was brought up, you know, um, in this home where there was this complex combination of intense love, actually quite a lot of fun too. You know, we spent a lot of fun, um, <laughs> fun days, which sounds curious unless you've been through it, you know, around Rowie's bed at the children's hospital. She was in there, um, for many years and, that was our life. And in a way there were a lot of things that, you know, that was her life and it was a full life and it was, I think it was too short, but in her, you know, reality, that was a, that was her full time. I couldn't understand that as a kid. And I had all of these complex emotions around it. Um, we were fortunate in a way we got the good part of religion. We got the part where, you get some hope and you get some anchoring and you get some faith. And my parents were very Catholic and their faith sustained them. So I always find it, um, you know, it's, we, we need to be critical of these structures, but in, in there was a structure that allowed us to hold together as a family. Um, so there was that. So there's all this complication there is what I'm saying. A lot of complex feelings and very mature feelings, a lot of kind of frightening feelings and one of the things that gave me great comfort was food. Now, like my brother, my brother and I could eat exactly the same thing, but my body was a body that went, we're going to hang on to this. And I was a, you know, I was a chubby kid and on the cover of the book, you're on kind of girl, you can see me. I was quite confident and fun in many, many ways. I'm there jiggling in my little bathers and, you know, there's a real spirit in me, but I worked out as you worked out that comedy was a way and making fun of my own body was a way that I could gain some currency. There are all sorts of complexities about being in a body that waxes and wanes in size in this world. My body still does it to this day. In a year of grief, you know, I've had a year where it's been a big year. I've finally finished the book I said I would write. Um, I lost my best, one of my best friends, John, after a a long journey of illness and my body will be hanging on to some weight this year. You know, I'll be bigger in the world this year. And the trick, the temptation is to buy into the story that that makes me less of a person, that I haven't been able to control my weight and therefore um, I've done something wrong. And my challenge as an adult is to discuss that because I'm not the only human being who feels this way. But it's also been this advantage, you know, Will, unlike yourself, like I couldn't, my body was always telling a story for me. You know, I couldn't, I could hide my emotions from, you know, I could be the comic in class, but my body size was changing all the way through my childhood and my teenage years and my adulthood. And I had this insight into how differently I'm treated as a woman and as a girl when I'm thin, as opposed to when I'm big. And I think in a way that has meant that I've never been able to exist for too long in a world where I don't get to talk about that stuff. So I did two years on the ABC Afternoons program. It was a wonderful honour. But after two years, I realised that um, my body was still not going to be quiet. There are other stories that I want to tell. So I've got a really, I guess I've got a really clear, you know, tell. Um, and so I've never been able to exist in that um, commercial sphere in a way that made sense to me. 
to have a book now that people are buying is success in a way that is different than I've experienced before. And it's, I'm, I'm, I'm in a little bit of shock, to be honest. I'm a little bit of shock. You asked me, you know, how do I feel about people having that story out there? Well, my assumption was that it would be like most things I do where there's a core people, crew of people who get it, but it doesn't lift to that next level where, you know, Joe Blow in the street is stopping me in the street to say, thanks for what you wrote. But that is what's happening. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm so grateful for it, but I am a little bit shocked. I think there is uh, a human insight that we're all starting to realize a little bit more of as people share their stories and tell their stories that you're every, like even the people who we view, if you feel like a bit of an outsider, I was a big kid at both you know, a, a fat kid, but also t tall, unusually tall before my friends were. Dutch? Uh, no, that, but, that, but I, but see, I didn't keep growing. So right. I, I'm the same height as I am now when I was 12 years old. Goodness me. So I just shot up it's incredibly, tall, you guys. yeah, incredibly good at sport and stuff at 12. Turns out that, uh, developed no skills cause I was bigger <laughs> than everybody else. So as everybody grew up, I gradually got worse and worse at sport, basically, as everybody got better and better at sport, my, my size being my predominant skill, uh, on the sporting field, it turned out. But, um, and I, to this day, because I would be somebody that I think people would say, well, at least if not thin, like, you know, wouldn't consider to be like, I have an extremely complicated relationship with my body, um, in the way that I eat, in the lack of, I, I've constantly felt in my life because of my arthritis and a few other things, I've always kind of hated my body. I don't like the way that I look without, I'm a real won't take my shirt off at the pool sort of person, regardless, you know, I, yeah. um, I've never, I've always felt like my brain, you know, like, you know, I can't. I don't have a body for lifting things or building things or milking cows or doing all these things that, you know, your bodies are meant to do. I, and my body's always just been something that carries around, you know, the, the head that does most <laughs> of the heavy lifting in the, in the world that I live in, you know? And so I think sometimes even like, so I responded a lot to, even though very different stories, you know, I, I know still to this day that I have a very complicated. And again, probably the opposite, the flip side, you know, if we talk about that, how I've tried to establish hold over my things by control, you know, my eating probably fits into that category, you know, in that, like there ends up being this like great deal of control because of the weird fucked up relationship mm. that I have with, you know, with food. Mm. And so I think sometimes, you know, we start to be surprised that how many people will relate to that story, regardless mm. of even if the manifestations of the story aren't the same, that they are still often dealing with that same idea of like, I hate my body. I don't yeah. like my body. I don't think it's good to me. It doesn't respond in the way that I want it to respond. I'm not proud of the shape that I have that carries me around in the world, this which when you say it out loud like yeah. that, it's just such yeah. a horrible, it's your body. Like, it's yeah. the one you've got. Like if, if you can't love it, how can anybody else love it? But, but I think what, there was something telling in what you said before, Will, in a word that you used, you went, bodies are, you know, my body can't do what bodies are meant to do. So again, we have this story that our body should be strong and it should be able to do X, Y, and Z. And it should be able to give, you know, birth like this and it should be able to, et cetera, et cetera. And at that core is a story that we're telling ourselves about what we did wrong. 
And I would argue how extraordinary that with, and you know, that with the bodies that we have, that we do the things that we do, you know, that we don't have to fucking adore our bodies all the fucking time. It's just not possible. We're human beings and our bodies change and we age and we are told all sorts of stories about how we shouldn't age and we do anyway. And that's, you know, can be excruciating, but catching it in that moment of going, maybe it's okay that I have this complicated relationship with my body. You know, maybe there's a little edge in there where I can be gentle with myself. Maybe I can just accept it. Maybe that's the most I'll ever get to. And that's good work done there. But spending that time to actually say, all right, I don't know anyone who feels perfect in their body. You might for a moment in time, you might have that summer, that sunset, you know, <laughs> oh, the summer of 96 and I was golden in the pool. But, you know. Yeah, I can, I can remember actually, I think my peak body, <laughs> uh, year 11, Lake Centrance, oh, babe. summer holiday. Yeah. Um, and I would have, it was just when I sort of, you know, the awkward growing had finished. Yeah. I would have been about 15 years old. I was like playing a lot of sport. I would have been at the fittest I've ever been. It yeah. was before any of the bits of my body started to you know, hurt or break. <laughs> okay. And I remember this one particular day on the 90 mile beach, you know, down in Lake's entrance and you know, big old waves. And I was just body surfing on the beach and the waves would like have that sort of, you know, tide that would rip you probably like three kilometers. Yeah. If you went out for 20 minutes and just caught them in and out, you'd mm. end up three kilometers down the beach. And I, all I would remember is do that. And then I run back to where I had started and then I would just do it again. And I remember doing it for an entire afternoon. And I think if you were going to do a graph of my life yeah. when I was at my peak, <laughs> that would have been the day. If you're going, was there any day that you were like, this body is awesome. And it's really, that would have been, I have that one memory and it was all downhill from there. <laughs> See, again, this is, this is, this is really interesting because I think we do have these brains that for whatever reason, we take a peak moment like that and then for the rest of our lives, we go, why can't I get back there? Why can't I get back there? And we waste so much of our life doing that. And we would never do that to our mates and we would never do it to our kids. Why can't you be two again when you were cute? You know, like we just would never do that. So again, I, I truly believe like the, the biggest, the, the, the best thing that ever happened to me was realizing that these are stories that my lower brain is wired to tell me because it wants for me to belong. But I have a higher brain that is more mature and is able to say, oh, I, yeah, that was a glorious summer. And here I am now saying things, you know, telling stories in the world that you could never have told as that young boy because you didn't know suffering in that way now and you didn't know what you could do, what you could make of your suffering. And I feel like that's what you're discovering at this age. Uh, one of the... Uh, things that you talk about in the book is that idea of, you know, that you were, you were actually told by somebody else after they you heard you sing and then you were you're overseas and having a, you know, a, a hard time. Nervous was, breakdown. Well, that's, you yeah, know, that's right. I don't want to spoil the book. Therapist but you can, called yeah. it a breakthrough. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll see Nervous, how much yeah. of that was true. Breakdown slash yeah, break, yeah. breakthrough. Break. But, but, you, but <laughs> that idea of taking that, you know, a moment or moments from your life that were hard and then turning them into something you know, through your work, through your art, into your life mm. as being experiences that make you who you are. So talk to me a little bit about that and how active a role, you know, that still plays in your life. Mm. I mean, often when I'm going through something terrible, there is, there is a s small part of my brain going, well, 
you know, this will eventually make a good story on stage, you know? So there, there is that idea of processing, you know, the worst things make the best stories. So talk to me about you processing, you know, that sort of pain, those low moments in your life, you know, traumatic things that have happened Mm. into art. There is a lot we don't understand about how our creative brains and our comic brains and our trauma brains work. Um, and I will leave this to scientists of the future to articulate well, but there is something, um, there is something innate in us that when we go through trauma or when we go through things that are beyond our capacity or our expectation for what was going to happen in our life, um, we're given the opportunity to process them in some way. We are called to, you know, and this might not look like a calling. It looks like being woken in the middle of the night with sweats. It looks like a racing heart. It looks like... Um, it looks like mess, but actually in there is your, I don't know what we call it, but some part of you that's saying, uh, we need to make something of this, you know, and we are storytelling beasts. That's what we're wired to do. It's how we've survived. This is a very useful tool. Um, but in this day and age, when everything's so busy, we don't actually have, we don't allow ourselves very much time to sit with those stories. Or sit with, you know, I've got these feelings, what the hell do I do with them? We just think I've got these feelings, go away, you know, fuck off, leave me alone. And sometimes that is necessary. But what happened in my 20s was because I was so unwell, I had an opportunity to start again from the beginning, really start again, like learn how to, you know, function again in the world um, and learn to ask questions about who do I want to be and what makes me feel right. So it started for me very simply with, I couldn't read, I couldn't play music. Uh, Everything that reminded me of my old life made me nauseous for a period of time. So this is when I was 21 and at my sickest and I didn't know what was wrong with me. Once I had a framework for understanding, ah, these are functions of a tired brain. These are normal functions of a tired brain. Anxiety is a self-limiting actually cycle. Things that's making it worse are my thoughts and my stories about how the sky's going to fall down and I'm a terrible person. So I learned slowly to accept those things, uh, accept that I was going to have crazy thoughts and that was okay. And then in that I was able to physically recover. Once my physical recovery was underway, I was able to apply to art school, which is what I'd always wanted to do and start seeing a therapist. I would just suggest go see the therapist first thing, please. Go to your GP. If they're not compassionate, then fire them and get another GP. That's what I should have done. But it took me a little while. But my deepest healing, which was about getting an adult understanding of grief and allowing myself to tell the truth about what I felt as a kid and why that mattered um, and the long tail of grief, my biggest healing came through this thought that I can make stories, I can make art of this. And it wasn't a conscious thought. It was me sitting down with a guitar. Once again, I'd had a relationship (laughs) breakdown. And I realized that as I started to play guitar in my little apartment at the time, and I didn't tell my art school friends that I made music. I just, with them, I did pottery, I did felting, I did crafting, I did theater. Um, it was the Bachelor of Creative Arts over at Melbourne Uni and the Victorian College of the Arts. So it was a privilege. I was in there making things with my hands and on the side at home, I was making songs. And I noticed this one thing. I had a very loud voice in my head that had been telling me for a long time that I was broken and that my life wasn't worth living and other horrible things, which I know are quite common. But there were signs that, 
you know, my lower brain was agitated and I was quite triggered. But when I would play music, everything would fall quiet. And so I just started going with what are the places where things fall quiet and seem peaceful and seem to make sense. And um, I cried a lot that summer. I spoke about things that were so difficult that I couldn't finish sentences about them, but I did. And I wrote music. And for me, that was incredibly healing, but I had no concept of who it would be for or how it would get out in the world. But Will, I remember, I remember something when I saw you today, which is early on in my music career, you know, it was sort of 10 years before, between that and the first time that I met you in a tent backstage at a music festival. I didn't know you, I only knew of you. And you came up to me and said something to me about a song that I had written and what it had meant to you. Um, and you, you'd not had an easy time and you just made the effort to beeline over to me and to say, I want to tell you this one thing. And then you said goodbye and left. That experience for me is a generative experience. When I go, ah, it meant something to me and it meant someone to someone else. I might never see that guy again, but it was worth it. That meant the next time I sat down, I was able to write more bravely and more bravely and more bravely. Um, you mentioned religion before and I did, I didn't wanted to, uh, talk about that a little bit because Please. Th- th- what, one of the things Me. that I l- liked about the book was how respectful you are of your parents' religion and what it had meant to them. And, and I think this is when we talk about what is good about religion and, you know, I this think it's a rare conversation. Yeah. Well, it days. is though, yeah. because there are so many things that are bad about religion and particularly you know, at, at the moment, so many institutionally bad things about the Catholic Church that to see someone write about, you know, th- their parents' relationship and what religion had meant to them and what a comfort it had been for them through some pr- particularly hard times in such a loving and respectful way was, well I, well, I enjoy it. Like, you know, I'm not one of those people that there was probably a period in my life, you know, there was probably a, you know, like, you know, God delusion sort of, you know, <laughs> people who believe in God are idiots part of my life, you know, but it's, it, that's not, that was me Fundament, trying. Fundamentalism makes all of us feel safe. Yeah. And I think it goes both sides of the, you know, the fence. So, so yes. And look, it, that is also a great example of me, you know, trying on other people's clothes, you know, as an, as an artist, you know. I mean, one of the things that I had to reconcile, you know, you always want to be cool. You know, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be Bill Hicks or George Carlin or, you know what I mean? I wanted to be cool. And, you know, I I spent a lot of time trying to, you know, convince people that I was cool and, you know, but it, it it was never going to be, if I was going to show people who I truly am, then I, I can't pretend to be like cool because I am not, I'm not cool. That's not actually really me. I'm, Who is? Yeah. Like really? Right. And maybe those people weren't either, you know what I mean? But the point being that part of that is trying on ideas and opinions as well. Right. Correct. Whereas my, this podcast, part of the reason that it started was that I had a thought that if I talked to a whole bunch of people that I knew that I liked, that all have, you know, different stories to tell and different perspectives on what life meant to them. And that was probably a much more accurate thing to explore with respect rather than going, let's work out what the case is and everybody else who doesn't believe us is an idiot. And so I like exploring those topics and those ideas. And so can I ask you what your relationship with religion is now, how you would describe it, and then maybe talk about the role that it played in your family and your life? Yes. 
Um, is it okay if I flip them? Because I think yeah, it might absolutely. make more sense if, yeah. I, if we do it that way. So um, I was brought up by a man called Ian and a woman called Mariana, who is a Dutch treat. My father used to say he looked, she looked um, like Audrey Hepburn, but even more beautiful. Uh, and she was from Amsterdam and she grew up in post-war Europe. Actually, she was born in the middle of the Second World War and post-Holocaust Europe, really. And she could not reconcile or forgive or make sense of what had happened and why. So she was brought up in a, in a very devout Catholic home and, um, my father was as well in different ways. Mum, however, went through a very rebellious period. 19 years old, she said, I'm out of here. I'm, I'd like to go to Paris, please, to um, just hang out with some artists. And her father said, no, 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 no way, mate. You can't do that. Young women don't do that. We're not that kind of family. Off you go to Holland, please, where you can be, you know, properly chaperoned by your sister who had migrated, Auntie Ina, who was living in the paddocks of Clayton. So here we have a, a deeply philosophical mother who is agnostic at the time. And as life goes on, um, her faith becomes true. So she has an experience where, although she continued to go to church quite often, um, her questioning changed. And she had an experience of faith that I can't understand, that one where it's like a penny drops inside you. It was around the time my sister was unwell. The penny drops inside you, you get it. And that's it. It's like you've, I don't, you know, you've, 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 you've gone on a trip and you, it's undeniable. So I ha admire the fact that she has that faith. I think it, it is a gift and I don't try and overanalyze it too much because it has given her great joy and, and, and uh, kindness in her life. She's a good woman. Uh, my father had a different kind of faith, which was a simpler faith. And, you know, he was a barrister. He was a logical man. But he got on his knees every morning and said the same childhood prayers. The structure of those prayers um, really helped hold our family together. And the hope of them helped hold, hold our family together. I have always been someone who talks a lot to whatever power that is in the world. You know, I lost my sister early and I've always tried to speak to her still. I try to live in the ambiguity that it is possible that when we, it looks like we've, we're dead, maybe we're not, you know, so maybe we still exist in some way or some form, but my ideas are never clear about what that was, you know, from, the, from teenage years onwards, what that was or otherwise. I didn't even realize we were that religious until I started going to a progressive alternative school called Press Hill in Melbourne, which I, and I was too rebellious for the Catholic girls school. My parents kindly allowed me to try this other thing. And my new best mate, Deepa, came home for the first time to my place in Sandy. And she said, holy fuck, I did not realize your family was so religious. And I went, what do you mean? <laughs> She's like, there's a holy water font in your hallway and there are pictures of Jesus everywhere. And um, there are two child-sized statues of Mary and Jesus in the front window. And I went, oh, right, yeah. got it. Okay, so we're unusually religious. I understand now. So, um, you know, my... I've always been really curious about faith and interfaith um, conversations, uh, which include atheist points of view and include agnostic points of view, 
this is, I think, the next frontier because we've had an othering, like, a, you know, you have faith and I don't have faith. or um, And we haven't had much conversation, I think, between all those different points about, you know, I mean, the atheists might think that's really fucking boring to have that conversation. But I actually think these these parts where our values unite are actually quite interesting. So you asked me about my religion. Um, I don't practice, I'm not a practicing Catholic. Um, I don't have this situation, which I think is quite common where to practice the faith of my childhood, to go into a church, um, I don't get the peace. I can't get the peace that was on offer for generations before when we weren't really aware of what the hell was going on in that church and in that institution with those priests and those innocent kids. And it's complex and we know that the majority of humans who practice this faith are doing it for all the right reasons, but there was a, a rottenness there that is so hard to process. So I feel robbed in a way <laughs> that I don't get the simplicity of faith and that I don't get the comfort, the pure comfort of it. And it's not that I don't ask. It's not that I don't, you know, there is some creative energy in me, which, you know, dare I say is a spiritual energy of sorts. There is a desire to connect to the person in front of me and the people around me. There is a desire to do good. These could just be human evolutionary values that work well. But for me, I am open. I don't have certainty. You know, I, I think why not sort of lean on my, you know, the possibility of hope, the possibility that we don't quite know. There is something magical about this life. Um, I'm open to that mystery. So, of it. you know, you've, you've heard the podcast, you know, that I ask people what they think happens when we die. And so this is the, we're not at the end of the podcast, by the way, unless you have to rush off. <laughs> But uh, I um, uh, do you have a hard out? What do you have a time that you need to be done by today? I think um, the do we know? yes, it was. Yeah. I have to apparently do a podcast at eleven thirty. Okay, great, that's fine. We'll get done great. by then. Um, but that just doesn't mean that I have to rush you to the end. <laughs> if that's okay, no, no, please. Um, so, uh, but I'm going to ask you now because then we can have I think a broader conversation around this mm. because I think you're a good person to talk to about this because this entire podcast was started really. Because I realize as I get older and older that what I believe to be true is hard to reconcile with what I see every day. So I could best describe my relationship with this is that I tend to be a person who doesn't really believe in much mystical or spiritual in the, in what people would describe as the traditional sense. You know, I've not, you know, not going to a clairvoyant, I'm not reading my, you know, horoscopes with any sort of, you know, any of that sort of stuff. But even just on a broader sense, you know, I've not been a religious person since I was a child. I don't have, I've, I've always sort of gone, well, in a practical sense, when you're dead, you're probably just dead. And we probably just are an accident in the corner of the universe. And this is a weird evolutionary thing where there's <laughs> nothing else like us in the universe. And I don't, certainly don't We're think a quirk. We're a walking quirk. Yes. But the problem is with the walking quirk, theory is that why is it this why can Claire write a song that I can play over and over and tells me a story not just inside my brain but inside my heart and then I can you know hear my friends you know you know Eddie and Gatesy and you know yeah Scott and Yoni like sing this same song and get an entirely 
different experience out of that. And clearly they've looked at that song and heard it in a different way in their heads and in their hearts. If we're a quirk, why that? Why all the great art? Why all the great music? Why when I laugh with my friends, you know, does it feel like some, like I'm in church, you know, like one of the, there's a, a hip hop show on Netflix called Rhythm and Flow, which I am obsessed by. And one of the things that Chance the Rapper constantly says, he uses the word church as a, you know, as a yes, yeah, an amen or a, an agreement. And I love it so much because I, I get what he means in that moment of that person being wonderful it feels like you are in church, that we're celebrating something much greater than a quirk and an accident in the corner of the universe. But how do I reconcile that with mm. the fact that I believe that we probably came from nothing and when we die, we go back to nothing? So our brain wants certainty. It is, it, you know, this desire for certainty is, has been very, very useful in many, many ways. But we don't get it in this life. We just don't because none of us know what's coming next. None of us can prove it either way, one or the other. So in a way, you know, our life is the stories we tell ourselves and which ones we choose to believe. And I know that sounds very, very simple, but I don't think, you know, if it, I have chosen to exit out of why, a lot of the time because, um, and this, this sounds sort of childish, but when it comes to things around, you know, death and dying and illness, I can't explain any of that. It doesn't seem fair to me. It never has. Um, and when I engage with that, what the hell is going on? Um, how can this be fair? How can I make this fair? How can I make this right? It takes me back to the place in my childhood where, after Rowena died, I thought it was my fault and there was something I should have done and could have done that would have changed things. And this is a normal, again, a normal common thought and grief. We attach to the guilt because it can make us feel quite close to the ones who, who are not here and give us some sense of certainty around it. Um, but as time has gone on, I've had to let go of that story um, and accept that I just don't know. I know... <laughs> I know that I like to believe that my father, who's not here, and my friend John, who's not here, and my sister Rowena, who's, who's not here physically, are still here in some way. I don't get to describe using words or language how that sits in me, but it sits right somewhere. And I have to sit in ambiguity a lot more than I want to in order to feel still that feeling. Now, people might say that's a suspended disbelief or, you know, that it's a childish choice or so on, but it allows me to keep hopeful and existing in the world. And in the end, I've made a choice to go towards things that feel right and true. Um, and it's kind of that simple and little for me in a way. And I don't, I, if I go into all the things that I don't know, I return to a state of panic and I'm not terribly useful in a state of panic. But if I am playful and curious about, hmm, I'm not actually sure. What if this? What if that? If I sort of take my lead from the people I admire, um, there's more room in there for fun and possibility and actually enjoying this life while we have it. Do you have a life philosophy? Do you have a philosophy to life? That is the vague theme of the podcast. I always ask yeah. people if they have one. Look, 
it's to be honest, it's really just a, it's a premise. The whole conversation is really meant to be yeah. about that. And I hope that it has been, and it will be, continue to be. But sometimes if I don't actually just literally ask the question, some people are like, you didn't actually ask them if they have philosophy. And I'm like, well, anyway, so the point is, I'm going <laughs> to, the point is I've asked you now yeah. and you can answer it however you would like. I don't have a clear singular philosophy for life, except that once a poet who was a teacher of mine at university said something that gave me a sense of freedom. His name is Grant Caldwell. And he said, hey, kids, welcome to uni. Um, here's the rules. First rule, there are no rules. Second rule, always maintain the right to contradict yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and I like that. And it's given me some freedom, um, to explore, which I think is the gift that if we allow ourselves, um, life can actually be f fairly interesting. Um, but I think what I come back to again and again, and the thing that compels me is I forget all the time that we are powerful. I forget that I am powerful. Uh, the story in my brain is wired to remind me all the time of where I'm not powerful. And the writing of this book has reminded me, how did I recover from what was a pretty bleak time? How do we as human beings recover from what seems like a pretty rough trot sometimes? And it's by reminding myself that although I'm constantly tempted to think I'm powerless, there is a strength in me, in all of us. There is a part of my brain the storytelling part of my brain, the higher brain, the wise brain that exists. And I always have the chance to tell myself a different story. One that's not so entrenched in doom and gloom and the habit of bad thinking. And I say that and make it sound simple in a way, but, um, it is simple. It just takes a lot of reminding every day. Um, that I, I do believe, you know, life is the stories we tell ourselves and what happens when we believe them. And that we have some choice in which ones we believe, even though it might seem foolish to other people, even though, um, we might keep them to ourselves. That is a possibility for all of us. The story in your head, the thing that said to you, uh, this, this is the thing that, you know, embarrasses me the most and probably, Good. um, this will be interesting. Good. Will, probably not the most. I probably overstated that, <laughs> but, but one of the things that embarrasses me is that, and Often, you know, like it's, it, 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 you joke about it in comedy in particular when people ask you about, you know, like, uh, you know, how you, know, you got into it or, you know, these, and uh, you know, my story's always been, you know, you fall into it. I was doing this other thing, <laughs> oh, blah, 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 because you can't admit to the world, tell the world that like, I just had a sense inside me and I don't know how unique or not unique. I, maybe everybody has like, you know, that story in their head and mine just worked out, but even when I was on a dairy farm in, you know, country Victoria, you know, with 250 people, you know, like never having seen stand up comedy, I had something in my head that was saying to me that, you know, Hey, you could, you could do something. And, and throughout the journey of me having done some things, there has always been something within me that thought that I could do those things. So with all the doubts that come with it, like it's not a, you know, relentless confidence or anything like that, but there's, I find it hard to, harder to admit to people when they say, I, how did you get all this? And I was like, well, cause I, I, cause I thought I could. And then I went and did it, you know, and that to me is actually an embarrassing thing to admit. And it gives me a chill though, when you say it, 
in a good way because you are right. We all suspect, all of us, if you if you can't remember that part of you that suspects you, you were here for something greater or something more, think back to yourself in that kid self. You know, what was it that I wanted to be or wanted to do when I was a kid? And it might be astronaut and you might say, well, I didn't grow up to be an astronaut. But think more about the metaphor of that. You know, what was that feeling I was longing for? Was it adventure? Was it... Um, was it, um, you know, learning something new? Was it doing something spectacular? It will give you clues. If you think back to those suspicions that you had as a kid that you might've forgotten because you're working in a corporate job now, or you've overrun with kids and, you know, those things are good and okay. They're fine. You, you make of them, you know, the best that you can, but who was it you wanted to be when you're a kid? And, and why is it that a couple of people like you and I, um, have stuck to that in some way? You know, that's a mystery to me. What is that tenacity in there? What is that restlessness um, where there wasn't really a plan B because you kept getting called back to the center? I don't understand that bit, but I think it's cool. In your book, you write about your friends or your colleagues or the people around you constantly nudging you in the direction of, you know, hey, you know, maybe there's something else that you should be doing in a way that perhaps you weren't acknowledging. Correct. And this is only clear in hindsight, but yes. So can you talk, because even reading that, I was like, I wonder if this is a hundred percent the truth or is this a reframing of the truth through a story that the rest of the world will understand was like how much of you, when you're working in the call center and doing very well and, you know, on the way to, you team know, leader. team leader, we keep playing but, my cards were, right. but we're being told by the people around you, Hey, we love you. And yes, you're, you're on the way to this, but we, even we can see that this isn't what you're meant to be doing in the story. You, you often tell that, you know, that other people are recognizing it in a way that you're not recognizing it. Were you not recognizing it or did you recognize it and were just pushing it down? I, I did recognize my longing. It was awkward and uncomfortable because I thought that wanting to be a singer was shallow and nonsensical and of no consequence. You know, I grew up again with this shadow of life is short, do something that means something really. And, you know, that, um, story and, my religious framework really made and, you know, patriarchy and, you know, civil society. (laughs) It's all of these things that are really uncomfortable and have been quite useful in our evolution and need to be questioned uh, as we continue to evolve. So the question in me was, is there a place for me? Is it okay to be a singer? Is it okay? Is it enough to do this thing that I'm called to do, want to do, have always done? You know, I wrote songs for my relatives in Holland and made tapes of them as a kid. I sang songs for my sister, Rowie, um, to bring her joy. I sang with my mum and I knew the lift, the fun around me, you know, when I would sing. I knew that this was a power of some sort, but I couldn't see in the world a place for a kid like me. I felt I was too big. My songs were too vulnerable, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, it's true that the people around me saw and were able to call out in me my secret subconscious desire, which was to have conversations like this in the world, for this to be my work. You know, what a fucking privilege that we get to discuss meaning and then maybe do good work in the world based on our job. But 
I couldn't see my way through. So in a way, it's like driving on a dark road and you're just watching the little stripes on the right of the road to work out where you're going. That was my career. And friends and people around me helped illuminate that stripe along the way when I really felt, I don't know what's ahead. How the hell is this going to work out? And I would spiral into all of this self-doubt. The experience rose again for two years of writing this book. I've been in a hell of a place trying to work out, do I have a right to tell this story? Is it okay to tell this story? And what I always anchor back to is this memory of it can be useful when we tell our stories. It makes me feel brave when I tell my stories. I like the possibility that my kids grow up in a world where mental ill health is discussed in a more meaningful and useful way where we get to include the larger story of the storm. It's not just the lightning bolts. It's also the, the, the sunshine that it's all involved, you know, that we are our own little, um, little climate systems, each one of us. And that's okay. So sorry to, that was a really fucking long answer. I like a long answer. It's a long <laughs> podcast. If, if we didn't have long answers, I'd have to ask a lot more questions. Uh, so in regard to, because that's at the end of the day, what the podcast is about, which is, you know, what, what is the meaning of life? But more, if I could reframe it is what at the moment do you believe is the meaning of your life? Because, you know, the thing that I, I, I think I'm starting to realize the more and more I you know, think about this over the years is that often, you know, your, the, the meaning of your life can, can be very different things. And that is also, um, totally appropriate for it to be that, but mm. sometimes you drift too far away from those lights on the road and mm. you have to kind of be guided back or you have to realize yourself that you've you had a little micro sleep at the wheel and you've drifted over into a lane you shouldn't be in and you're going to have yeah. to get yourself back to the lights on the road. So yeah. right now, having gone through this process, you know, not only talked about you know, your processes of therapy that you've gone through, but then having to go back and you know, put, go through it again. Cause I know what it's like. If you're going to tell those stories legitimately, like if you're going to take yourself back to that moment to tell the story to other people, then you are doing them a disservice if you don't legitimately take yourself back to those moments. And some of the moments that you describe in this book, are, you know, moments that some of the most traumatic moments in your life and to tell those stories and share those stories legitimately rather than glibly. You know, there are things that have happened in my life that I still have never spoken about because I still could not tell them in a real enough way to do the story or the time or, you know, the service yeah. that it needs. And yeah. so that story will remain untold yeah. until I have this, or maybe forever that story will remain untold, but I'm not going to tell it until I know that I can tell it legitimately and in the right way rather than, you know in a, a glib or outside or, or not legitimate way. What I is most impressive about the book and why it doesn't surprise me that people are already stopping you to tell you is that clearly you've legitimately gone back to these moments and tried to explore how you were feeling. Yes, you have the benefit of 20 years of hindsight on some of these things or more, but, but at the same time, you can feel that you went back there, you know, maybe sometimes through the diaries, maybe sometimes through, yep. but, but you had to go back there. I did. And to be honest, I'm a little shattered from yeah. it still. So I, I think can imagine. my, my task now is, um, uh, to rudely attempt, uh, a little self-care mm. for the next little bit, anchoring back to, um, 
the look for me domestic routines are actually really quite useful. I've been on the road for quite a while and the rest of the time I've spent a couple of years in my PJs getting get to the heart of this book um, with thankfully a supportive family around me. But I've got a baby girl who's going into year 12 next year and I've got, a, I'm getting a cat tonight. Uh, I can't believe it, but we, uh, we are going to be a, a family who are becoming a cat family. We've got a dog, Charlie, already. And you can sort of hear the, the joy in the, the joyfulness of this next little bit for me is I survived the writing of a book, <laughs> which was about surviving a, a life. Um, and I, I found, I was able to write this book cause I did find a useful thing to say. I would never have told, you know, I, I, I would save these stories for my therapist until, you know, I, I worked out that, um, quite clearly I did recover. I really did. I, I never went back to that place again. And it was with the help of a simple little couple of techniques and, um, with a bit of hope. And so for me, I'm satisfied that this book will offer something useful. Now I get to perhaps, um, have these conversations, but also do the things that make me feel full again. I, I get to write some music. I get to bake some bread. I get to go on walks. Um, and I know that sounds simple, but that's where I'm heading now. You know, I get to check in with my, my family and, um, hang out with them. So maybe I get to write again, you know, but I, I, I'm excited about that. When you, um, cause you became uh, a parent pretty early into your relationship, as you talk about in the book. I did. Uh, were really you... early. Yes. First date, guys. <laughs> you can do it too, but I would suggest that you really love the person before you do. I mean, and like, I did. Yeah, you did. So that was fine. <laughs> Which is again, I, well, I, it's so funny because, you know, we have like not known each other well over the years, but we've, you know, our, our paths have crossed and, um, my path has also crossed with, yeah. Is Marty your husband or partner? Marty is my husband. Husband. I was, you know, when I listened to your um, podcast with Marie Cardi, mm. do you remember you, you recorded it at home? Yeah. I'm like, uh, I, you know, I thought about that and I thought, I feel like I know Will quite well, but actually I don't because we've never had any social time. Our time has always been work time. So anyway, we've still got that ahead of us. Yeah. Too. Well, Next that's time. I, essentially <laughs> that normally is the, it is a kind of, you're, you're in that zone of like, like. I could probably, she probably would come to the house if I invited, <laughs> yeah. but you're still in that zone of like, yeah, yeah. no, a nice neutral place is always safer for somebody, you know, I don't, but you know, I don't know. She, she might not like the dogs. I, I wouldn't you know? come. I would have, <laughs> but I look forward to that. Uh, but your uh, husband, yes. uh, Marty, um, he did eventually become my husband. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he, um, that your love story is told beautifully in the, in the book, but Thank I was you. just saying to you beforehand that it's so funny to me because I don't. Because we don't know each other that well, I had never made the connection between Marty, like, you that know. That really it, tall drummer in my band. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, but also the fact that, yeah, Art of Fighting, my favorite Australian band of all time. And, yes. and yeah, recently oh I went and gosh. saw, you know, they put out a new album and Marty actually like put me on the list for the show. And of course, yeah. I, but I, again, I really just in my head, I'm like, okay, well, I guess this is just like, you know, life or whatever. And then when I I'm reading that. the book, I'm like, it all, it's all coming together in my head. Of course, I feel like a massive idiot, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, this is great. Like, this is like a, it's like a series I've been following, but I didn't know there was a crossover, you know? So I love this. The drawing together. Yeah. And did you feel curiously attracted to Marty too in a different way? My friends have read this book and they're like, whoo, I, uh, I've never, I didn't know any of that. Cause Marty is the quiet achiever. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't know this from conversations with him because 
he um he would prefer to play drums than yeah. tell you all about himself. So it's not your fault. Uh, How good are artists fighting though? Uh, yeah, I mean, come on. The yeah, I mean, my, oh. Wires is my favorite Australian album of all time. It's, Me too. Yeah, well, I mean, you've got a you know your bias, but 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 I but I was in love with the music before I was going out with Marty. In fact, I think it probably helped a little yeah. bit. Yeah. <laughs> album overseas with me and yeah. you know Marty was my friend but gosh the feelings yeah the feel it's lucky lucky yeah it's genuinely beautiful music yeah, beautiful. that's that you know and and I had never got to see them live um until they recently put out a new album and I, I got to go to the gig at the corner hotel here in uh in Richmond because Marty put me on the list Ooh. and uh I love it and uh yeah it was just uh it was just fantastic I just had a such a wonderful time and it was so beautiful but beautiful is the word beautiful music. And I, as I've got older, I, I have become less and less ashamed of loving things that are beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know, like I think there was a point in time, particularly as a man yeah, where loving beautiful fair, things really, is, is, is not what you're meant to do. And being able to make things, I think that's the next step. I've, I've always been very like, you know, my stand up is really like it's always just been me and a microphone, you know, and a, you know, and a stool. And in the last few years, like, you know, James Fosdyke, who does all the original art for this podcast and, um, he does, you know, the original art for my, for my stand up shows. And I started to, you know, once it got to the point where I was like, gee, people are paying a fair bit to come out and see this show. And, you know, maybe I should at least have a backdrop or something, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, but James makes these really, you know, you know, really, you know, fantastic, intricate, you know, you know, pieces of work for me, but I was watching uh, Josh Thomas's show. I went and saw Josh, he, Josh did the podcast recently and then he did his show at the Palais and it was the first time he'd done stand up in, in six years. And one of the things that I walked away from the show thinking was how beautiful it was. And I, I, I really was in my head going, I think I would like, would like to make something where I admit that I like beautiful things and enable, allow myself even to explore the idea that I could make something that was at least had an element of beauty in it, that I wasn't embarrassed by, yes, that and I that, didn't or, think it was yeah. daggy or horrible or, or not cool. Or that if you did, you to, made it anyway. Yeah. Because you might have all those feelings and it's not your fault. These are the shame stories we pick up from our society. The same way I picked up a society uh, story that wasn't actually true about my body and what I made it mean and what it stopped me from doing. See, I feel excited when I hear you say this. You said two, you said many things, but you said you're longing to have a year where you explore certain things without, and I, I don't want to get you, you in trouble with your bosses here, but I want you to fiercely take that year and I want you to make something that is crushingly beautiful, even though your inner critic will tell you that you are going to cause shame to yourself and society and et cetera, et cetera. Because I think you will be shocked at how hungry we are for beauty and how grateful we are when someone goes there. I will be grateful. Um, so uh, what are you most proud of? In your life. I love the way that you change the topic so cleverly every time, every time. But I understand. I know this is your podcast, but you know, I want you to sit on that for a little bit and I want you to tell Will if you agree with me too, if you don't mind. <laughs> I mean it. 
if you could just bully Will into it. But who are we going to listen to? I Which know. voice are we going to listen to? You know, that one that tells us, oh, fucking grow, grow some balls, mate. Or that one that says, I long to do something different. But how do you know that, I mean, there's that constant fear, isn't there? That yes. if you, what if I say what I really think? What are you most scared of? Because there is the juice. Yeah. What if you say what you really think and what? And you die? It's going to happen anyway. But what if I, what if I say what I really think? You know, what if I talk about the things that I really want to talk about rather than the things that I believe that other people want me to talk about. Well then fuck, that would be interesting. Cause I think you've probably spent <laughs> enough of your life doing what is interesting to other people. And but I what if my only skill is doing things that are only interesting to other people? Well, and that if I, that if I make something that is purely just what I want to make, that everybody else <laughs> will just not like it. Yeah. What about that? Yeah. And what if that doesn't matter? <laughs> what if it doesn't matter? Like, what if you are doing this for you? Mm. And there will be people who give you a one star review and throw a tomato at your head. But what's so interesting to me is you're so scared of this as I was so scared of telling this part of my story too. I was quite comfortable with, you know, being a known as a pretty competent mum singer songwriter who, um, you know, and with, with indie sensibilities, it's a pretty comfortable story for me to tell this story was terrifying. The satisfaction hasn't come until now. It took um, a whole lot of encouragement from a whole lot of people, therapists, friends, family to get me here. And I look back and go, ah, I was, this is the thing I was most terrified of. And it's turning out to be the thing that is most, is growing into the most satisfying work, um, thing of my life. You know, it's other than it's, it's different from other things in my life, but in terms of work. So I think it's really exciting how terrified you are of it because that is a clue that you're onto something. All right. Now I, I'm going to ask you again, what are you most proud of <laughs> in your life? Look, I, the thing, you know, what am I most proud of? Just when I ask you yeah. that question, what just comes to your mind rather than, yeah. uh, this doesn't have to be a locked in answer. Yeah. But what came to my mind yeah, then what came to is, your mind? I am proud that I had the guts to listen to a hopeful story. I'm proud that I was willing to entertain the possibility of what if I could be what I always wanted to be. I always wanted to be a mother and I always wanted to be a creative person and make my living doing that. So it would have been so easy for me to put that story to bed again and again and to have lived in some ways a simpler, more contained life. But I am proud of the fact that I, when it woke me up in the night, I listened to it. Well, as a parent, because it was, parenthood was, a, you know, thrust upon you a little rather than, you know, planned necessarily, but then embraced very much so, you know, like enthusiastically embraced. Which is fortunate because I'm a woman who was in love and with a guy who I knew would be on this adventure with me. And so for me that, you know, the, the yes was very clear, even though it was, you know, I had to awkwardly 
Look, my parents weren't expecting this announcement. Let me say that much. Anyway, yes. There's a great story in the book about uh, <laughs> them doing what parents would do in that situation, which is being horrified by it initially. And then during the course of this kind of time, as they reconcile and realize the best approach is to be <laughs> enthusiastic and get on board. But you can really feel that in the way that you tell that story of, you know, them going from, no, no, hang on, this is a joke. Stop joking through to, you know, it, there's a real stages of, you know. Still turning pink, just yeah. thinking about it. But yes. Uh, but so did, did you have a philosophy to parenthood? Did you like have an attitude and do you have one now of like, you know, this is the sort of parents we want to be. These are the sort of lessons we want to give our children and the way we want to raise them. My philosophy to parenthood is very much informed by the one that I was brought up under and by the one that the ones that I learned from my close friends, I always had this ability or desire to sit in other people's families with them, with the Datna family and with my dear friends, the Lubitz family. So I've got a, quite a few second families. Um, and here's what I learned in there, which I'm reminded of all the time, that our kids will tell us who they are, actually. Um, there's probably a few songs in there, a bit of Khalil Gibran going on as well, and a bit of teach your children well. No, 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 no. That must have got in there as a kid too, because my philosophy is they will tell us who they are and it is our job as a parent to teach them the ways of the world and remind them always that they are their own, I just, I'm going to quote myself, their own kind of people. They are their own people and it's all right and good and exciting actually to be your own kind of person. There are certain things that make it easier in the world to get along, you know, knowing your manners. It's pretty helpful, actually. Understanding a little bit about money and how it works, very useful. Um, there are other things that, you know, are handy to know. But effectively, each of my kids is so incredibly different. And I fucking adore them. They know it. And in a way, I'm there to be the tough guy when I need to be. But I trust them. I trust their instinct. And I know I'm doing my parenting well when I have the, um, when I'm able to be with, you know, spend enough time, uh, in their worlds to understand what they need. Uh, last question. Cause, uh, you've got to go and, uh, you I've do. got to go and, yeah, uh, one day we'll do this, uh, another time. We can At do this another with time the dogs, uh, with the dogs. And yeah, I'll bring exactly. snacks. Okay. We can do a uh, part two with the dogs. I look forward to it. Uh, so, all right. Uh, time machine question. So I've got a time machine. You can go back to any point in history or your life, observe or change a moment. It's difficult to say this. It will always be the same answer. I still want to go back in time and make my sister well. That's the child in me will always want to do that. And I think that's okay. I will always want to do that. And I, I think everyone else will understand that too. I'm the sort of person I want to go back just before the Holocaust and uh, nudge, you know, uh, <laughs> the powers that be into some cave where they can never come out. And we don't get that choice. This is my great lesson. We do not get to control the circumstances of our lives. We just don't. The weather, the people who died, the ones we couldn't save, etc. There's one thing we get con to control to some degree, which is not the first story we tell ourselves, but the second story. So although I long for that, I'm constantly reminding myself um, to accept, to face and accept. And that will be my challenge until I think my dying day will. Thank you, Claire. Love you.